My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hello and welcome to She Started It, the podcast that explores female entrepreneurship through the eyes of an inspiring guest every week. I'm your host, Angelica Malin, Editor-in-Chief of About Time magazine and founder of the She Starts It Live festivals. From fashion to fitness, law to entrepreneurship, this series of She Started It will explore what it takes to be a female trailblazer today. Get ready to be totally inspired. Today's podcast is brought to you in partnership with Tide. Tide is the business current account designed to support small business owners like you. With no daunting paperwork and no monthly fees, you could open an account in minutes. They couldn't make it simpler, trusted by over 100,000 businesses. Download the Tide app to get started today. Annie Mack is an internationally renowned DJ, broadcaster, events curator and more. Annie is a key music industry figure, championing female and LGBTQ plus artists and advocating for positive, inclusive change. She presents the most influential show on BBC Radio 1, runs two festivals, Lost and Found in Malta and AMP London, and can be seen on the biggest stages of music festivals around the UK and the world. Across multiple projects, including her events brand AMP and the Finding Annie podcast, now in its second series, she's created a far-reaching presence rooted in quality, integrity and the authentic connections that unite us all as music fans. Annie Mack, thank you so much for joining me. What a delight to have you on She Started It. Um, For people that perhaps don't know of your career and how many kind of different things and projects you do, in a nutshell, could you tell us what your job looks like at the moment? Uh, Okay, I would call myself a broadcaster, a DJ and an event curator. It, it's Essentially, I'm a curator. You're a curator. Of music in many different forms and shapes. It's a, it's a lot of things that you have, like a lot of projects and a lot of different mm. aspects to your job. Do, do you find that juggling quite difficult? Um, I... Is there a secret to how you no, do No, I don't actually. I, I really enjoy the juggle. I enjoy the variation of things that I do within my career. Mm. Definitely. Um I yeah I, I I actually I probably strive to try and start new things and do new things all the time. Yeah, yeah, amazing. I'd like to backtrack and go kind of back into your early days. When did you first get into DJing and how did that happen? Um, so I first started DJing when I was in my final year of university in Belfast, um, and I had jumped headfirst into clubbing and club culture, and, and kind of really fell in love with dance music, and also just collecting records and was was buying them and kind of trawling the shops for them, um, and eventually bought a pair of decks off my friend Mickey Murphy secondhand, and then spent that whole summer, my final summer, after kind of 
finishing uni in Belfast, just mixing and trying to figure out what to do with my life. So yeah, it was it was kind of late teens, um, and it was just a hobby. Were there a lot of women who were DJing back then? I knew of none really. Really, I knew of women on the radio but not in terms of club DJing. I guess mm. there was Sister Bliss off of Faithless. Um, there was, yeah, there was like, you could count them on one hand. And, yeah. and what was people's response to you DJing? I don't remember, to be honest. Um, for me, I had always been one of those um, people who was comfortable in 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 the company of, of men. Like I'd always had loads of uh, friends that were boys and... Uh, so I used to hang out with a load of guys and just like get nerdy about music. Um, so it, I never felt like imposter syndrome mm-hmm. at all. Maybe mm-hmm. that's more of a reflection of me than yeah. of them. But uh, I never did um, feel like I was kind of intruding in, in, in a world that men inhabited. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly because I probably didn't take it that seriously at the start. It was just something I wanted to learn and I, I just was, was really curious about it. Um, and then when I became more professional as a DJ later on in my life, um, still, I, I very much noticed that I was uh, a minority, but I, I I think it kind of worked out to my advantage in a way because I think there was a curiosity about me because mm. I was a woman. And people kind of came to see me and were kind of curious um, about me. So, uh, yeah, I think at the start the reaction was just probably shut up because I couldn't mix very well and then uh, when it when it did start happening for me the reaction was uh, I think I think it was it was positive yeah Yeah, it was curiosity Mm. when did it change from being a hobby into something more professional um when I got my job at Radio 1 so I pursued a, a kind of career in radio um always wanted to be a broadcaster uh did a master's in London um moved over there um and got lots of little jobs in in kind of smaller radio stations and then eventually got my job at Radio 1 and I was working as a DJ then um in a little club in Camden just very kind of getting like 70 quid for 4 hours work and just uh just kind of learning how to press play on records in front of people um it was by no means kind of professional um until I got my show and then once I got the show I obviously was afforded this platform um, and my show was exclusively dance music and I started getting gig offers then and that's when I really was thrown in at the deep end and had to uh, learn the hard way how to how to be a DJ. <laughs> how did you kind of like when that big break kind of happened and you got the show and you knew you were gonna like step up what what did you feel like how did you take that leap? I felt really excited I always had a plan like this weird five-year plan in my head that I wanted to have my radio show on Radio 1 by the time I was 26. And uh, I, I, it was like the week after my 26th birthday really? that my first show happened. So I just kind of, in my head, I'd always worked towards it. And when it happened, I was really, really elated and happy about it. But because it had been so real in my head as an ambition and uh, I'd been kind of knocking on the door of Radio 1 for so long it wasn't that much of a surprise Mm -hmm. it was more just a a joy obviously Um, and the gigs um, I felt I definitely felt imposter syndrome then in terms of being a professional DJ and being kind of traveling around the UK and playing legitimate nightclubs in front of legitimate you know ticket buying public Uh, as the main attraction I found that hard and and I remember feeling really unworthy and nervous and writing out all the songs I was going to play on a piece of paper before I played them and 
my boyfriend being standing behind me being like you've got to smile like look like you're having a good time and I was just like so focused on trying to do the right thing and get it right technically that I kind of forgotten to the performance aspect of it you yeah know? that people are actually watching yeah you. and obviously that whole side of it was really hard too because I, I've never performed before mm-hmm. and suddenly you're put on stages in front of kind of 1500 of thousands of people and you have I have no experience of performing um and so I mean I still to this day I find that strange right because I suppose that's not something people really teach you you don't really learn that performance element I suppose it's meant to come kind of naturally but yeah. there's no real guidance on that absolutely not and do you find the the kind of aesthetic the public image side of it sometimes difficult so I saw that you put on Twitter about photo shoots and mm. you know that you didn't used to like to have your photo taken mm. and I suppose you were suddenly had this radio show and I imagine everything was a lot more public how did you kind of deal with that um do you know what the hardest bit about getting the radio show was? Is that up to the point of getting the radio show, I was working at Radio 1, but behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So I had a full-time job as a, an assistant producer. The hardest bit about getting the radio show was leaving that full-time job to then become a freelance radio DJ and having one show a week, which was two hours long. I was just like, what? I was yeah, so what used to working time? so hard to yeah. get to that point. So that was kind of mentally the hardest bit. Um, the, the actual being put in in the limelight or whatever that it because uh it was still it was still a late night show you know it wasn't immediate it took me a while to accumulate fans and any interest and curiosity in who I was so I never really felt overwhelmed at that side of things Mm -hmm. um and and the kind of um nature of radio and 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 kind of fame as such is that it's it's quite a gentle side of it you know Mm -hmm. it's 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 all to do with your voice and your personality and um, you know, people don't like run across the road going, I need a selfie. They just kind of sidle up to you in boots and say, I really like your show. And that's a nicer way of it happening. That's quite you know? nice. Yeah. Um, so you yeah. Have to, yeah, you don't have to think about sort of doing your makeup for radio, yeah. which is quite nice, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And so how do you build up your confidence? It, it strikes me that you're quite a confident person and you knew what you wanted and you're going after it. Have you always been confident? Um, I don't, I may, maybe, yeah. I think... I think an element of it is my upbringing, obviously, and my parents being very, um, uh, just kind of letting me figure out who I was without any sort of uh, um, kind of putting me in boxes or categorizing me or kind of conditioning me in any way. Um, So they were very, maybe it was because I was the fourth child of four and my mum had four babies in five years. There was a lot to do. So I just was let to get on with it. Um, And I think maybe I developed a sense of kind of confidence uh, in that I just had to figure stuff out for myself from a young age. Mm. Um, And that includes just figuring out who I was. So I was always the person in our housing estate who would be kind of down climbing trees with all the lads, you know, playing football. I was the only girl on the football team in school, the boys' football team. And my parents were very just like, yeah, if you're into it, go ahead and do it, you know. Um, Which is probably why when I came to DJing, which was very much a man's world, I was like not that phased by it. Yeah, mm. well, that makes sense if I was yeah, to psychoanalyze. You'd yeah. probably say that you were used to being the only woman yeah. in these contexts, so mm. it wasn't so so different. In terms of kind of gender diversity now in music and DJing, where do you think we're at in 2019 with diversity and like where do you think we need to go? It's it's a, I think we're in a good place. I'm really happy to say that, especially in terms of dance music. There's been a real tangible shift 
in the amount of females that you are seeing uh, on lineups and on stages all over the world. It's become totally normalised now. Um, what I would like to see is is, is those names moving up mm-hmm. uh, the lineups. You know, currently, if you look at a lineup for a festival, it's always the bottom third of names that are kind of most of the women names um and obviously it will just take time for for people to break through and become kind of headliners and um and kind of front you know whole festivals and and whole events so i think it's just a matter of time before it feels very equal in the in the world of dance music um in the worlds of other genres there's still a lot of work to do Mm. um it's just a matter of shouting about it very loudly and I've been trying to do that and I think a lot of other people are being forced to have to think about it now um, and being kind of, because of the, the discourse becoming more public, there, there there's kind of change happening um, be, because it has to. And I feel like on radio itself, there's been a lot of improvements, but it's it has kind of traditionally been more male presenters. Oh my god! And we're yeah. still especially like in the working. world of specialist music, which yeah. is what what my world. You know, it's 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 very 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 um, lacking in mm. women. Do you think it's harder for women to break through? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I always think it's really interesting, especially in the world of kind of specialist music. Again, not as much now, but it's traditionally been like the the kind of music expert, or you know, mm. has always been a kind of bearded you know, guy who's like knows every B side of every record and, you know, every label and every decade. And, you know, the kind of go to music expert has never been a female. Yeah. Um, it's just the way it's been. So I think um, it's changing rapidly. You know, you have Lauren Laverne doing the breakfast show and six music. You have Marianne Hobbs doing um, the lunchtime show and six music. And the BBC especially have been very good at pushing women forwards. Mm. Um so I have high hopes. Yeah. Um, I would also like to see a lot more women in the top tiers of um, management structures in, in the kind of industry side mm-hmm. of it. Um, you know, behind the scenes, it's still like the dance music, you know, industry is so run by men in terms of the promoters and the label owners and the publishing and it's all so male dominated and right and that's a huge part of the problem because that's the, if they're the, the ones making the exactly decisions. if the women aren't the decision makers it's the same when i talk to female business owners about mm. investment and they're saying well the investors are male yeah so the female founded businesses aren't getting the investment because mm. they don't connect with it in the same way they don't get it yeah and so if the women are the decision makers you know that really helps us all yeah it blows my mind actually because you know we are half of the population yeah. and it's like any man worth his salt should see that this such a huge market in investing in women it's absolutely for sure I know you've just recorded a podcast with Jessie Ware and you were talking about motherhood um Mm. could you tell me a little bit about kind of how having kids has changed your career and like the difference that you've felt since having kids uh so it has definitely changed my career it has forced me to rethink everything with regards to my career especially in DJing which is obviously a kind of nomadic Mm. career choice. You know, it's constantly traveling all over the world. It's really, really unsociable hours. Um, You know, an average club gig for me, I would be starting DJing at 1, 1 1.30 in the morning, finishing at 3, and that would be in a kind of uh, a town, city far away, and then you have to get home, um, and it's always at the weekends. Um, So i have found it very hard the djing side of things to kind of keep up with it it's just not made for parenting dj no absolutely not <laughs> um so there's been a lot of kind of um 
you know, wrangling on how to maintain this. And, you know, I, I found with parenting, like the hardest thing about it is the fear of, of the unknown. It's just not knowing how you're going to feel, not knowing uh, how you're going to cope. And then you just get have kids and you just have to and you yeah. figure out ways of working and you quickly figure out ways of how, how it doesn't work and what, you know, what can't continue. Um, so for me, it was just, you know, luckily being pregnant meant that I could only DJ up to a certain point. So, you know, I was furiously Googling, you know, uh, loud sound and pregnancy and what happens when you work in factories that make really loud noises like trying to find the kind of medical mm. evidence for is it okay for me to DJ beside massive bass bin speakers in a club when I'm seven and a half months pregnant is this going to harm my baby you know I just didn't there wasn't anyone to talk to that had done it before that, um, yeah well presumably but there weren't that many heavily pregnant female DJs no, that you could have gone to and said I didn't know any ask those questions yeah. yeah so I felt a bit like it was kind of did, uh, you, did you find the answer out uh, well, I just found it from the factory thing, mm. um, and I stopped DJing at around seven months both times, or maybe it was seven and a half months both times. Um, so that was, and, and then I just so for that I couldn't DJ after. So that was kind of cool because it was like, okay, my body is now in, you know, dictating to me whether I can work or not, yeah. and I have to just take a step back and allow this to happen. Um, and it forced me to kind of have a different perspective. And then coming back, uh, I also found really hard because I didn't know when I was going to be ready. But you have to book gigs like six months up front. Mm -hmm. So I booked this festival in London called Lovebox, which was six weeks after I had my first kid. And like looking back on it, I, I wasn't really ready, but I kind of did it because I said I would do it. And um, was it was it mentally or physically you didn't feel you were ready? It was it was mentally and physically I just didn't feel like I wanted to be stood in front of thousands of people I just mm. wasn't really ready for that mm. so I was able for it in a physical way but it was more just kind of not not feeling confident yeah but maybe it was good because it forced me to and I just got on with it and you know maybe you know in retrospect it was a good thing just to dive right back in like you figure these stuff things out as you go along but well, yeah, um, I guess you didn't have to kind of overthink it. You just had to, you know, it was booked in and that was it. You were kind of back to work. And I think yeah. often the struggle is you've taken a set amount of maternity leave and then you have that question at the end, should I go back? Yeah. Whereas you almost didn't have that option. Yeah, and sometimes the longer that you have off, the harder it mm. is to get over the hurdle of going back. Definitely. Psychologically. Becomes, yeah, it becomes a bigger thing in your mind. Exactly. But I can imagine for you, for someone who enjoys their work so much and is so kind of connected to it, that taking that time off must have been quite hard. Yeah, it was. I found it most hard in radio. Because radio, you know, especially the radio I do for the BBC, they really much, they really invest in your personality. It's not just any old presenter kind of. It, it's kind of. It's. I felt like the shows were a reflection of my personality, and I put everything into them. So handing them over to someone else, mm. I found really hard, and I found myself in a position where I felt very vulnerable. In that, I felt that my show it could be taken off me mm. or I could be moved when I went back to a different show or a different slot I didn't feel safe even though I was assured by my bosses that I was mm. there's this when you hear someone else doing your show it's like if you do a normal office job right mm. and someone else is doing your job you don't actually get to see them or hear them doing that when you're on maternity leave but in mm. radio you get to listen to them every night yeah you're just there <laughs> and after a while I just had to stop listening because I was like it's too weird it's too hard but it's weird because it's like the show is your baby and then you had an actual yeah. baby like, which, which baby is the one yeah. you go with I can imagine it's quite difficult but I found that when I went back actually um, 
especially the first time, which I found really hard, it, it was it was really good for me because I felt like people welcomed me back and mm-hmm. I felt like there was a, an element of, um, you know, especially from from the listeners who, who were happy to have me back. So that was like, okay, it's okay to go. Maybe the fact that I've been doing this for kind of, so long since you know I, I kind of started in 26 I had my baby when I was 34 so it was kind of eight years of doing a show maybe that was worth something you know that people were invested in me and if I, I was planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen premium luggage options buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Grateful that I waited till then to have a baby. Yeah, absolutely. Today's podcast is brought to you in partnership with Tide, the UK's fastest growing business current account provider. Feel confident in your first steps as a founder with smart financial tools and 24-7 in-app support. With easy invoicing and accounting integrations, Tide is an alternative to traditional banks for small businesses like yours. Spend less time on admin and more time on growing your business. Tide are also committed to helping women in business and are offering our listeners £50 when you open a Tide account and deposit £50. Just visit www.tide.co forward slash she started it to get started. If you're feeling inspired by this week's episode and are thinking of starting your own business, why not come along to the next She Started It Live in London? Taking place on the 13th and 14th of March 2020 at Crypt on the Green in Farringdon, this two-day flagship festival will give you all the advice and inspiration you need to supercharge your career with over 75 incredible speakers. Book on Eventbrite now by searching for She Starts It Live and use the code SHESTARTSIT10 for 10% off. You talk about the importance of the personality and I think one of the things that I really know from you is like your personal brand, that you're not just a DJ, like people know your name and your brand like in and of itself. How how natural was that kind of evolution into becoming a brand? Did you ever kind of realise it was happening or did you kind of go about trying to kind of brand yourself? I mean, it's so, so not, uh, I'm basically not a businesswoman. So it never occurred to me that this was a thing and um, I think it started kind of in my late 20s once I'd been on an air for a couple of years and it was like okay I'm I, I've, I'm kind of becoming a business person here like I'm, I'm kind of doing a lot of things that insinuate that I have on my own business like that that's way the way I approach it it's, it's never like okay I've got a business plan I want everything to happen this way and this way it was I'm not naturally business inclined so um, the business side of things and the brand side of things happened totally organically. Someone thought it would be a good idea to make my logo 
a kind of cartoon emulation of my head. And then that was really the start of it because in all the marketing and all the flyers and all the merchandise and the, the visuals behind me when I DJed, it was, it was this picture of my head, which was a very simple and kind of, it was well done. So it became quite... Um, it's I quite guess iconic, yeah. yeah, impactful or whatever. Mm. And I guess that's when I started becoming the brand. And I have struggled with that over the years because I've thought like I, I can't. It's too. Ugh, I just I don't know. You I've, kind of bit cringed out by it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And over the last couple of years, definitely kind of tried to um, just put it to bed a little bit because I'm trying to move the business in a different way where it's not all dependent on my personality and mm. very much kind of lives on its own two feet without me front facing yeah well yeah. I suppose also like having a family and having a lot of personal responsibilities you probably want to get to a level where it doesn't need to be that you're at every event or you're the 100 percent. Yeah, you just can't yeah so you have to make decisions how your business can evolve um and you know you're changing all the time and it's kind of uh, things have to change with you um that's something that has been I think I've probably taken a bit too long to figure out I wish I'd kind of figured it out a bit sooner I find it interesting that the logo was created and then you almost became the brand that the logo was it's yeah. like the logo kind of came first yeah and my man it's funny my manager's always like we need she loves the logo obviously because it's it's you know it works so well mm. and it was on the cover of all our compilations and I was always like, oh, I feel funny about the logo. Um, but I totally get her perspective. Um, and, you know, people have had it tattooed on them and it's it's become a symbol um, for what the brand is. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily for what I am now, yeah. but for what the brand is, yeah. what was then, which was a kind of a big clubbing, kind of new music, really exciting brand. Yeah. Do, you, um, do you feel a sense of responsibility, like in your ability to kind of break through acts and, and introduce people to this new music? Like, do you are ever overwhelmed by that sense of responsibility of the power that you have? I get asked that all the time. And the answer is no, because I don't really dwell on it. Mm. Um, I take it seriously, obviously. And um, I'm really lucky to have an amazing team of people who uh, you know, have full-time jobs in taking it seriously as well. And together we work really hard at making sure that we make the right decisions and they're very considered. Um, so I feel like I'm doing the music justice and yeah. doing it in the right way. But I think if you get too hung up on that stuff, it can be... Uh, it can be a little dangerous mm -hmm. because you're making decisions based on the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so I've really tried to to not do that. Like not to obsess over it. Yeah, and yeah. also I'm really busy, so I don't have time, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> Got yeah. those Imagine things occasionally to think when you're in the bath and you're like, oh, I wonder. <laughs> um, tell me about the festivals. So you have a festival um, in London and one in Malta. How did the festivals come about and like, what's the aim with them? Um, the festivals came about, the London one came about because we were always looking for ways, you know, we've been putting on events through this company, AMP, which stands for Animat Presents. And we've been putting on events for, I mean, well over t ugh, 12 years now. Um, and it's just ways of kind of keeping that interesting and, and trying to be progressive with the events that we do, and making them unique, making them stand out, making them the best possible experience they can be for the consumer. Um, so the London one was a kind of us looking at what we've done in London before, which is like sort of selling out Brixton Academies and that kind of thing. And then thinking, how can we do this differently? How can we present uh, an event or a series of events in a different way? So 
that's how we started doing the London one, which was instead of kind of trying to sell as many tickets as we can in one massive venue, is putting on lots of little shows um, mm. around the same time and kind of creating this idea of excitement and, and kind of um, buzz mm. a- around London, um, showcasing all of its best music. And that has recently evolved, well, since last year, actually evolved into a conference as well, kind of paralleling the music side of things. So I'm really excited about the London one because that... For me, because I host a lot of the panels, it, it feels like a nice kind of confluence of everything I do mm. in terms of broadcasting and music um, and obviously the music industry because the panels are all loosely based around music and, and culture of music. So that's been really cool and I'm learning loads there and we're kind mm. of um, evolving and trying to get bigger every year. And the Malta one um, is now in its sixth year this year. And that is directly a reflection of all the dance music that we we kind of promote and showcase as a brand. And that is it's just, I just love it so much. It's like very small. We've kept it small. It's only ever been seven, 8,000 people. Um, and it is, you know, an adventure. The consumer has to invest in this adventure as well as just mm. a ticket. They have to get on a plane and go somewhere that most of them haven't been before. Um, it's afforded me these wonderful relationships with the Maltese, with the tourist board there. Um, and I've just learned so much in terms of how to put on a festival. Like The way that I work is not so much anymore because I, I have implicit trust in the team. But at the start, I had to know all the details. So me and my manager, I think it's quite a female thing. We had to be across all the minutiae. So, you know, how long does it take to walk from the transfer bus to the pool party? And how, you know, how many toilets are there for every person in this venue? And all of these kind of small logistical things, they really matter to the overall experience of a consumer at a festival. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've all seen the Fire Festival documentary. Yeah, that, exactly. That stuff matters. Why, yeah. why was it that you chose Malta? Well, Malta chose us more. Mm. We were approached by uh, a group of promoters that we'd worked with for a long time. um, And they actually had been developing this festival over in Malta and they came to us asking me to headline it. And then we went back to them and said, how about you let it be... Let us have a festival. ...an old AMP festival. We work with you. So that was that, yeah. Yeah. I suppose with this stuff, it's like taking the opportunities when they come or seeing them and tweaking things but I suppose you probably had a, a vision and you had a sense of things and then you made the opportunity work for you yeah I mean I had I also had a very great team you know my agent uh, was the one who said why don't we try this and in fairness I don't think I would have thought of that myself I don't think I would have had the balls mm-hmm. or the you know whatever it took to kind of think that we were worthy of doing that um so I'm really glad he did. Yeah. With those team relationships, it sounds like with so much of what you do, it's you might have an idea or you've got like a, a sense of the, the destination, but actually getting there is you need all these people um, on board and part of it. How do you um, how do you find that team and how do you lead them? Like what makes a good team? I think that I mean it's the most important thing in your career is being able to you know, it's still curation in a way, isn't it? It's just making sure you have the right people around you that you trust, um, that are innovative and, and think in the ways that you need them to think. It's about knowing what you bring to the table and knowing what you need at the table that will make a full kind of package. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it's about having people who are genuinely passionate, people who are um, not driven by money, that's really major because mm. I think I might be frustrating to work with if I because I'm just always about the experience and um, trying to 
do the most unique thing rather than trying to make the most money. Mm. Um, especially on events, actually. Especially on events. Mm. You know, I'm so all about keeping Malta at a really nice um, size where the experience is not diluted and it's still brilliant for everyone rather than making it bigger and compromising everything for mm. everyone. Mm. Um and and I do believe in the long term that still does pay. It's just about having a long term like vision, yeah. you know, because we're at a point now where the artists want to come and they are, you know, they are approaching us. And that's where you want to be um, when you put on an event. And, you know, it means that our festival will last hopefully much longer than other festivals. I've tried to get big quick. Yeah. So it's just it's learning that. And I think maybe it's about having the confidence to speak your mind and having a team that you feel will listen and genuinely respect your opinion um but also a team that will tell you when you need to listen about mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. and and having people that you feel like you trust so if they do sit you down and go listen i think we're going the wrong way here you go fine like please you know feel free to stop it and 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 do it the way you think yeah. like for me having a team that you trust is such a refreshing and amazing thing and I'm so lucky at the moment I have it in all aspects of what I do and maybe that's because I've learned what what it takes but in radio in podcasting in management everything that I do I'm so lucky to have great teams and I thank my lucky stars every day for that mm. well I suppose it's sometimes about putting your ego to one side you know mm. you said about taking criticism and feedback you and it's have to you just have to put yourself you know yeah. and it, I, th- I could imagine it'd be easy to be like well I'm Annie Mac and this is my festival and actually yeah you know listening to everyone and, and helping them let you curate it also when you're when you're busy and when you have so much on and you're kind of juggling lots of things I like it when people go listen I just want you to know that I've looked into this and I think we should do it this way mm. I'm like oh amazing yeah yeah great well, so often it's the things that you don't do rather than things that you do do yeah, yeah. That, that make a difference. The stuff that you leave out or you decide not to expand or yeah. it's doing less actually mm. a lot of the time and you need people to tell you that. Um, can we just quickly touch on your podcast? So you launched Finding Annie this year. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a bit about the podcast and what's the experience been like for you hosting it? So the podcast is a direct reflection I think of me having a minor midlife crisis Okay, because <laughs> I turned 40 last year and uh, I kind of looked back for the first time in my life at, at my career I looked backwards and was like okay I've love what I do but I feel like I've been doing the same thing which I have been which I love but for a good 15 years now mm. and I really felt a craving to learn something new so I did two things one was start a writing course and start writing a book Amazing. a kind of novel which I've always wanted to do and I did a degree in English lit but I've just never had the time um and then the other one was start a podcast and I think it was kind of a a rebellion of sorts to the um to the way the BBC works in that you know there's a lot of people in there there's a lot of departments and a lot of approval systems that you have to go through to get anything off the ground and I really like the idea of just being able to have control of something do it myself buy the equipment, learn it, do it in my garden office and and just just the kind of impulsive nature of that mm. really appealed to me. I'm so impulsive, I'm so impatient and in retrospect I should have thought through the podcast so much more than I did but I loved the idea of just doing it all myself when I wanted and also having these conversations with people that weren't about music, mm. that were about other stuff Um and I have so enjoyed it and I'm in yeah, series two now and really loving the 
the freedom mm. of of it and at the at the start it was kind of a bit scary because it's really the wild west like when you're used to broadcasting at the BBC where everything is so formatted and and you know um every there's a department for bloody everything at the BBC and then you go into podcasting and there's no rules like there's no what like, you can, we can and literally can't do. just talk you can do anything so at the at the start it was like oh, I don't really know what to do here but I kind of I feel like I've found a little bit of a, a rhythm in it now yeah. and I'm really I've got to say really enjoying it that, yeah. that freedom that you suddenly have mm. do you have any highlights from the first um, series um, I guess the first episode is with Sarah Cox who's a very good friend and just talking about um, labour and birth in a hilarious from, from her her perspective um, and very candid way was really cool and I think um, the way that I approach podcasting is very well I'm just kind of me so I'm very sweary and very honest and um, I found the ones that have had the most impact are the ones where I'm talking about the kind of big things in life that are female orientated so birth was a big one and also most recently the one with Jessie Ware about working and about parenting and motherhood was a really really big one so just for me it's the idea of getting these really amazing emails from people who are finding solace in listening to the podcast it wasn't what I intended to do mm. and now it's like wow I, I never thought that the podcast could be like really helpful to people yeah. as well as entertaining like you know? therapy for yeah. people well I suppose also with your uh, with your radio and your DJing like they're seeing a, some aspects of your personality but not everything no and there's idea, a yeah. you know there's an element of vulnerability with the podcast where you can show these other sides of your life and you can share your struggles and people probably really connect to that even though they might have listened to you for years yeah which yeah. I think is really beautiful it's nice yeah so you've got so much on at the moment tell me what's next what's the big next plan oh god um, what are you excited so about so we're currently in the process of booking the festivals from Malta and, and London for 2020. Uh, that's when, when are those going to be? There's one in March in London, um, which we'll, we'll announce hopefully next month. And then the Maltese one is in, oh my God, when is it? It's in May, I think. Um, so that that's we're getting on with that. Um, the podcast is something, I'm, yeah, it's ongoing. Series two is happening at the moment. It's called Finding Annie. And then the, the book is written kind of I'm wow. in the middle of writing draft two how exciting I mean it's just been a really interesting and really uh rewarding process in terms of learning mm. I just loved learning and uh loved the creative process of it in that it's got nothing to do with anything else it's just my own little kind of escape and um I don't know whether it's any good. That's the only problem. Well, it might be like DJing. It started as a hobby and then it yeah. kind of grows into something beautiful. And who knows? This might be the next stage of your career as yeah. a novelist. So. Yeah, I quite like the idea of being a novelist. It'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Yeah. Just take it anywhere with you. A cup of tea. A cup you know, of tea, a nice laptop. little room with a window. Perfect. Sounds glorious. None of those late nights, seven months pregnant exactly, DJ. Exactly. Next to the speaker. Well, Annie, thank you so much for joining me. You've been the most wonderful guest. Thank and you I so much. I wish you luck with all your future projects. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review so more people can find the show. Until next time, keep dreaming and achieving. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. 
What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. 